Welcome to Half Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. Today we bring you a special episode, just part of a podcast host swap that we did with the folks over at AI Today. AI Today is a podcast hosted by Ron Schmelzer and Kathleen Walsh of Cognolytica, where they cut through the hype and noise to identify what's really happening with adoption and implementation of AI today. So in this episode, we interviewed them about their backgrounds, about what they're trying to do with the podcast and the kinds of guests that they've interviewed and to get their thoughts about the realities of AI rather than the hype. Um, We also appeared on their podcast as part of this uh, host swap. So Sean and I spoke to them uh, about what we're trying to do here at Half Stack Data Science, where we try and talk about the realities of doing data science in the real world. So you should check out their podcast. It's called AI Today, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, They have a new interview coming out every week, so uh, you should definitely go check that out. Um, In the meantime, hope you really enjoy this interview with Ron Schmelzer and Kathleen Walsh. All right, we're here with Ron Schmelzer and Kathleen Walsh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thanks so much for having us today. Yeah, thank you so much for letting us inflict our opinions on your guests. Fantastic. No, we're looking forward to it. So we'll start with a question that we always ask everyone to really get at what you do. So Kathleen, why don't we start with you? What is your job title and what do you really do all day? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm Kathleen Mulch. I'm a managing partner and principal analyst at Cognolytica. We're an AI-focused research advisory and education firm. We're a small boutique analyst firm, about under a dozen. We have a variety of roles that we do every day. Sometimes we talk to customers. Sometimes we are producing research. We cover the AI market and track about 20,000 vendors in the space. So as you can imagine, that's quite a lot of vendors. We also have our own podcast as well. So we get to talk to many thought leaders in the space for our podcast. And then, like I said, in addition to that, also with our education as well, we really advocate for best practices methodology in artificial intelligence, including best practices CPMAI methodology. So we are educating a lot of folks in the space on that as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm Ron Schmelzer, also a managing partner and principal analyst here at Cognolytica. And the podcast that Kathleen referred to is our AI Today podcast, which if you could see the video, you'd see me pointing at a banner behind me that says AI Today. And actually, when we started our analyst firm back in 2017, we started with the podcast, in part because we wanted to make sure that we were always talking to people who were actually putting AI into practice. We love the researchers. We all love what's happening in academia. We love that stuff. But at the end of the day, the people that we're talking to, they're trying to put this stuff into practice. And so the idea with AI Today podcast is we were going to talk about people who are putting AI into practice today. It was kind of a very obvious name. And as Kathleen mentioned, we spent a lot of our time trying to really understand what's happening, You know, really put our pulse on on, on the actual activities in the market, uh, the people implementing it, the people using it, the people selling it, the people buying it, the people consulting on it, the people talking about it. And these things that you hear are not always in sync. And it's always good to explain. So yes, we understand that might be what you read about autonomous vehicles and the illustrious Elon Musk. But let's talk about reality here because it's going to probably be a little while before you can sit in the backseat of that car and not have anybody in the front seat. (laughs) Now we're all like kind of cagey on that one. But anyway, that's an overview of who we are and what we do. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, that's great. And so it's great that your podcast has as 
with similarities with ours, focusing on the realities of this fancy nebulous thing that in your case, AI, in our case, data science, but we, we can talk about the, the overlap there, significant overlap uh, in a bit. But we're, we're really interested at, also to understand your backgrounds, like how did you get to working with AI? Like what is your specific journey and background into it? So Ron, why don't, why don't you start? Yeah. So I actually started, I went to MIT and in the, in the 90s. And my academic uh, advisor was Rodney Brooks, the illustrious robotics industry, AI researcher, second wave AI, who uh, was the idea of let's build from the ground up, not do the symbolics approach and that sort of thing. And you know, interestingly enough, I actually didn't really do much with AI, even though the, actually the funny thing is I read this book called Hero, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution that, that drove me to, to really want to go to MIT, mainly because of the AI research. I ended up just going computer science, electrical engineering, and I started actually a company. I was one of the first online commerce companies, and that, that company was during the first dot-com wave, and that company got acquired by a public company. And then, of course, the whole dot-com thing happened. And then I started an analyst firm in the early 2000s called ZapThink, which was focused on enterprise architecture and a thing called service-oriented architecture. If uh, you all may remember that, maybe that causes some interest, maybe that causes some pain, depending on where you were in that. And the idea was really advocating for loosely coupled systems. We were moving away from integration middleware. There's a whole story there. Me and my partner, Jason Bloomberg, really spent a lot of time on it and grew that company pretty sizably. And it was acquired by a government contractor, actually, in 2011. And after that, and this is where the stories of Kathleen and myself overlap, I, I started another software company to get back into sort of e-retail space. And I had moved from Boston, which is where I was, to Baltimore. And I'm like, is there even a tech scene here in Baltimore? I started a, at the same time, along with the software, started this meetup called Tech Breakfast. And the idea with Tech Breakfast was that we would just have companies demo. It was like just a morning demo event. It literally was exactly what it sounds like, Tech Breakfast. We'd have breakfast. You see some tech. And I'm really good at the obvious names, I think. So except for Cognolytica, that's not as obvious. <laughs> but, so it was like this thing. And I basically, Kathleen had a startup. She'll tell you a little about that. She joined. And then we started working together at Tech Breakfast. And Tech Breakfast became pretty large. It was this demo event used to be in person just here in Baltimore. And then we were in, in Boston and then New York and Philadelphia and Austin and Silicon Valley and the Raleigh-Durham region. And then Kathleen and I were asked to basically run the Innovation Award, this de demo event at South by Southwest. And so we started doing a lot more. We're actually still technically judges for the Innovation Awards, although since the pandemic, I'm just not sure that anything is happening normally at South by Southwest. But anyway, we're involved with that. And one of the things that we noticed as we were starting to do more of these tech breakfast events is that AI started becoming a big thing, especially mid part of the 2010s, going to 2015, 2016, 2017. It's like screaming AI. And so we're like, okay, let's start. I went back to my analyst roots and let's start digging deeper into this. And Kathleen and I basically launched Cognolytica at that point to, to help companies make practical use of AI and machine learning. And wow, here we are four years later. So right. <laughs> Kathleen, you fill in some of those gaps and talk about your background. Sure. So my background's a little bit different. I started off in marketing and was not uh, technical. And back about 15 years ago when I started, the worlds were much more separate than they were now. You know, so comes data, which powers everything in the world these days. And technology started to creep into many more aspects of business. And so that's where, you know, I really started to see those worlds 
merging and became a little bit more technical by default, right? Out of necessity. As Ron mentioned, so I worked at some large marketing firms early in my career. Then my husband and I had a startup where it was called Hourly B. We tried to match service providers with customers and didn't really take off as as much as we wanted. I think that we needed to raise a lot of venture to make that happen. It was back when there was a bunch of companies similar to um, that idea coming out in the space. But I met Ron and he was looking to you know grow and expand Tech Breakfast and it was a great fit. And that's when we started working together. So you know, well before our Cognolytica days now. And like he said, back in maybe 2016, 2017, we really started to you know pay attention to the market and where things were headed. And in particular at that time, voice was becoming quite popular. Natural language processing, voice assistants were really starting to hit the market and make some waves. So we started Cognolytica. And as he said, our podcast was started really to see where we were with AI today. For folks that follow the AI industry, they know that we've been through some AI winters in the past where we have funding and interest and investment both from companies as well as governments and also just adoption in general has really declined. So we said, okay, we're back in this hot AI market. Where are things? And four years later, 200 plus episodes, we have not run out of things to say. Is there a winter coming? Oh, that's a good question. We hope not. <laughs> I, th- I think there's a lot of concern. The thing that there's a commonality between all these winters, which is that usually the, the downplay and people like get all excited about AI and they, they put tons of money and interest into it. And then what happens is the inevitable, wait a second, I thought these computers were going to promise us to do all mm-hmm. these sorts of things and they're not. That's the overpromise, underdeliver. It just seems to be chronic. And I don't know what it is about AI that gets people to be so fanciful. They're like, oh, image recognition works. Great. Let's build an auto autonomous car we're like whoa in one in one jump yeah right. pretty much <laughs> and it's that's a big leap and we're like oh this natural language processing thing works with alexa and with siri and we're like okay great let's start asking these questions in these devices all these sophisticated questions like why didn't it understand the question how long do i need to put a turkey in the oven 14 pound turkey it's like why can't it even answer that question and that's when people are like oh these systems are not as as smart as we thought them were to be. And I think it's sort of, you just need to have a healthy (laughs) perspective on what this is. And I think we're reaching, I think that's where we are. So are we going to enter into a winter? And I think it really depends on, I think a lot of the vendors need to really just become more realistic claims because a lot of the practical uses of machine learning, which, which may or may not even be in every instance, really what we're trying to accomplish with AI, just machine learning, some of the the machines are pretty good at discovering patterns in data. And to the extent that we can apply those in realistic ways, we shouldn't have a big trough of disillusionment, hopefully. So we'll have to see. Have you seen a shift in towards any of that realism in, in the way vendors or practitioners present what they're doing? I think that we're starting to see a few years ago, there was a lot of marketing spin around this. And there still is marketing spin and vendors claim that they can do more than they actually can. But we are starting to see also the general user, general consumer getting smarter as well. We always advocate to question the vendors and really understand what they're doing. A few years ago, in particular, robotic process automation was coming out hot and heavy. And 
for some reason, the word robotic in there, I think, was tripping it up and making people in general think it was more intelligent than it was. Because Until six months ago, I actually thought that it did literally involve robots. Yeah. And I, I so we don't particularly like that term. It's uh, task automation. But so I, I think that there was some spin and confusion and the vendors definitely did not do anything to help alleviate that confusion because they wanted to get VC funding and VCs were confused. We've since seen the market, I think, mature in that and realize that it is automation. And while that is incredibly useful and has proven its worth in many instances, it isn't intelligent. And so thankfully, we're starting to see folks really understand that there is a difference. And so with anything, I think it's really just educating the market, making sure that they're understanding, don't believe what people tell you. I think the other thing that's happened in the industry, which I think is unique in this situation, is that the average user, the average customer is becoming more aware of data, of their own personal data. And they're becoming more aware of these issues of privacy, of bias, of appropriate use of technology. And it's, you see this, maybe 10 years ago, people were like, facial recognition, woohoo, what could go wrong? And, and now people are like, eh, maybe things can go wrong. Algorithmic decision making, which isn't necessarily an AI thing. Anytime we could build rules based systems with human intelligence, mm -hmm. so you don't need machines to do them. But we're starting to see flaws with the sort of generic application of algorithmic decision making because of biases or other situations. There's a great book called Weapons of Math Destruction. You might have heard of it by Kathy O'Neill. And people talk about this things like credit scoring systems and automatic college admission systems and HR hiring systems that aren't maybe necessarily have bias by intent, but have. And I think a lot of these things have started to dampen some of the interest and enthusiasm in intelligent systems, basically. But maybe have brought it a little closer to re reality. I think listening to your respective journeys, it'd be interesting to understand why you do what you do. Both of you have done lots of other things. For you, Ron, what keeps bringing you back to data? What keeps bringing you back to... AI, Kathleen, did anything push you away from marketing in particular? Why have your firm doing these things in this space versus all the other things you could be doing? That's true. So I, th I think two things, and maybe something that I think brings Kathleen and I together, which is that we are both very entrepreneurially minded in that we like the idea of people trying to find opportunities to solve problems and to build solutions to those problems. I just, I, I know that I make a terrible employee. So I'm like, well, I guess I have to work for myself. I have that sort of mindset of always questioning and always trying to figure that out. And I think I've always been tech, me personally, I've always had the technical mindset and I've always really been very much interested in that. And, and also, I, also to, to a certain extent, I have had a, a really interesting affinity for the problems experienced in enterprises, which large corporations, really I have my, my most affinities for not the people at the very top of the enterprises. I can care less necessarily about the C-levels, although we interview a lot of them, or, or the people maybe at the very bottom. It's those people in the middle who have been tasked with accomplishing some job or mission, which they hopefully support, but they're not necessarily in charge of deciding. And then they have to figure out how to deal with, with this mess in the middle. And I always feel for those folks because because they have to, it, they're not in the position of just, oh, I'm going to build a product or I'm going to start from scratch 
and create data out of nowhere. It's like you're in the system. And I, and I think those are the people who's, who run most of what we deal with on a daily The world. Sympathy yeah. for middle management. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> there you go. And <laughs> Kathleen, how about you? Do you care about middle management as, as much as Ron? I think Cognolytica as a whole, we do, because that's really a part of the market that can most benefit from what we offer. And I think needs some of that guidance because they're not at the top level making these really big, broad strategy decisions. And then they're not super low level, technical, just implementers. They're really that middle level where they need to understand at a high level, different areas of the market, different players that are out there and know how to manage these projects as well. Make sure that they are adopting best practices, methodologies for whatever it is they're running. Yeah. So I, I think that those are people that we really do enjoy talking to. As far as moving away from marketing, one thing that I found in the decade plus that I've been in the professional world is that when I started, there were definitely what was very traditional marketing and very quickly it started to evolve. And I think that a lot of roles have to become more technical really focus on the data. And just data itself has grown at an astronomical rate. The amount of data that corporations have, I think, is almost incredible to think about. 20, 30 years ago, did we think that we would have nearly as much data as we have now? And as Ron mentioned, people are becoming more aware of their data and their digital footprint than they had uh, previously. For all of those things, I think it is great. And, and as he said, we both are very entrepreneurial. So to be able to work at an organization that we can do a lot and wear different hats and not be so boxed in. Oh my gosh. Ron talks about some of these large corporations. Yeah, they are just really bound to their processes. And I think that can that can be challenging because they can't break out of that mold. They're like, sorry, this is our process. And we're like, okay. And that takes a lot to, to get out of. So while I do sympathize and really enjoy talking to that middle management, I don't always envy them <laughs> when they're at large corporations. So when you're speaking to these middle managers and you find ones who are very excited about doing things the way that you tell them that things could be done or that, that way of thinking, how much friction do you encounter between them and the higher ups? Because in our experience, if it doesn't come from the top down, you're always going to encounter problems in trying to actually do something meaningful. What kind of experiences have you or talking to any of your guests have you encountered about that? Yeah, it's really interesting because actually right now we work with a lot of large enterprises, but there's this one really large beverage company, which I'm sure you may know who they are, who is actually in the midst of some pretty substantial changes to, to the whole organization. And the people we're working with, they're, they're, not, they're not out there making these huge corporate decisions for this multinational company with like probably divisions in literally every country in the world. They're like, we have this responsibility. We, we have to deal with this particular aspect of it. And within their little fiefdom, I guess is probably a good way to think about it, that these little middle managers, they have their fiefdoms, which has both positive and negative connotations. Within their universe, they have some control. And, and to the extent that we can make them successful within their fiefdom and make them look successful within their organization, have that their success, everybody is, is happy. Of course, the problem you have is fiefdom versus fiefdom. <laughs> when you have multiple fiefdoms that don't have necessarily aligned expectations, that's when you can get into some troubles. And so we do talk to the C-levels all the time. We tell them, it's like, look, your job, 
micromanagement's not your job. And I think large organizations know that. Your job is to basically facilitate an environment where the people can basically be successful by giving them the resources and the support and the guidance and the structure and all that sort of stuff. And also people who are like working for a company in the Netherlands division may not be aware of what's happening in Mexico, may not be aware of what's happening in Indonesia. And the best thing we can do is knowledge sharing and information sharing and best practices sharing, realizing that there are differences. The data privacy regulations in the European Union are not the same as the data privacy regulations in Mexico and Indonesia. And and I, th- I think having that sort of ability to share is important. So one of the things that we, we do really facilitate, because we impl- we're not implementers, we're not going to go in there and implement stuff. We're going to go in there, provide information and provide knowledge. The best thing we can do is facilitate, say, hey, there's this great example of these folks applying this particular in this particular domain. You may want to think about applying this particular solution in, the, in this domain as well. Do you have any positive stories of organizations that have sort of changed their ways from that swamp? We have a couple of examples. Of course, the biggest industry that's seen change in the past year and a half is pharmaceuticals and healthcare. And it's actually still a good question as to, wow, we were able to produce this vaccine for COVID in a very short amount of time. And so it begs the questions like, well, what prevented us from doing that before? Was it just will? Was it regulatory? What were the bottlenecks? And I think all of these firms now are looking, well, they had to, they didn't have much choice to say, wait a second, maybe these 10 processes that we had in place, because this is the way it's always been done. Clearly, we didn't need those processes because we had to kick them by the way. We had no choice. We had to kick them by the wayside. I think we're starting to see this effect more broadly, especially this work from home thing is changing a lot of companies, making them rethink like all of their processes. Do we really need these in-person meetings? Do we need to really have interactions this way? I think think it's interesting the pandemic has been highly disruptive and it's causing people to rethink that. And in some cases to, to, to be successful. I think the places where we've seen the lack of success, I know this wasn't your question, uh, but I'll flip it, is like the people who are seeing the the people who are rigidly holding on to their practices were like, no, we are a bank. The people in our IT organization must show up. And then we're like, okay, but you're... You must innovate within these four walls only. Otherwise, it's not, doesn't count. In Excel. Right. In office, in Excel only, or sorry. I, I think to add to what Ron said too, is that we are seeing companies rethink what they're doing, but they need to be open to that. And so it needs to come from all different areas. And then also they thinking and changing processes is not easy. It's easy to do what you've always done. And I think that's why a lot of organizations didn't do it in the past, because if it's not broke, why fix it? And I think that the pandemic forced them to look add a lot of what they were doing and then figure out how they can have technology help. Oh, that's a, a really good point. And it's one of the things that, that we like and talk about on this podcast is that, that one of the benefits of a career like data science is that there is no set pathway into it. It's not like there's a law school or a medical school for data science that produces identical and identically thinking, identically working foot soldiers in the data science world. People come from all sorts of backgrounds as people, as our, our listeners are very aware. And as I'm sure you're very aware from all the different guests you had. So I'm keen to, to understand a little bit about the kinds of backgrounds 
of people that you've talked to on your podcast? And is there any kind of pattern in different backgrounds being more successful at innovating in AI or anything that you've learned about specifically about the kinds of backgrounds that people ha people have in AI? We've interviewed some really interesting people with very different roles. We've interviewed plenty of chief data officers at large corporations. And I, I am I'm not trying to malign the title, but there's an awful lot of folks who have inherited the chief data officer title without really having any sort of experience or expertise in managing data at the organizational level or even dealing with that. And this is another little kick we've been on, which is the role of the CIO, Chief Information Officer, evolved over the past like 30, 40 years. But it's really become, if you look at what most CIOs do, is they're spending a lot of their time managing systems and managing technologies and managing things like that. And we're like, well, where did the information... Where did the information part get left out? You're not the chief uh, technical product owner, right? You're the chief procurement officer. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You're supposed to be the chief information officer. Now we have this thing called the chief data officer. And we're like, data, information. I thought we had the DIKUW pyramid, data, information, knowledge, understanding, wisdom. I think that is, so the opposite side, the folks who, are, I, I really question what's happening. Actually, a lot of times what's happening in the top levels, we actually have a piece that we wrote. We actually, Kathleen and I also write for Forbes and we write for Tech Target. And we wrote this piece of the, is the chief AI officer title, do you really need one? Is it a bogus, right? is it a bogus title? Yeah, it's funny. I was actually going to bring that up. And we wrote that years ago. Too, because we started to see organizations think about this and we said, why are you doing that? And then a few years later, fast forward and we're seeing different government agencies and different organizations having chief AI officers. And we're like, why <laughs> didn't you read our article? <laughs> right, because because you're not if, if you're not if you're not making use of the technology across the information in the data domain. It's just a separate thing called, there's a chief IO, CDO, and a CAIO. So anyway, some of the more interesting ones is really a lot of the folks who are like, one of the great interviews we had was with someone in the government. It was uh, with Alex Measure, who is an economist within the, the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. One of those agencies that most people don't even know exists. And they're there to quantify economic measures, things like all the economic measures that, the, that, the, that it's important to measure. And they also do things like quantifying things like workplace injuries and statistics. And this fellow, Alex Measure, was talking about the fact that, I know he's got a great last name too. He's, he's, a, he's a guy whose last name is Measure as an economist. Ah, oh, perfect name. And that's his real name though. And one of the things he was tasked with doing is like, this is again, one of those processes that's been around forever. They would do workplace injuries by basically having the employers respond to a survey and they would respond in, first of all, in paper, and then they would respond online in a form. And what the economists would have to do is spend their time codifying it. They would have to basically say, okay, this, this kind of injury has this particular code that happened at this kind of work. The cause was this code. So it's all codes, coding, right? And he's like, why am I doing this? This is crazy. We spend like 80% of our time not doing economics. We're spending 80% of our time doing data handling. Can't I just build a classifier, right? He's like, light bulb goes off, machine learning, classifier, natural language processing. These things can all go together. And he talks about the fact just him as an economist put together this classifier. Originally, he was trying to use a Bayesian classifier. Then he used PyTorch. And now he's using some TensorFlow-based thing. And he's even though there still needs to be a human in the loop, the it just 
squeezed down that time tremendously to basically making sure that the codes are correct and they just need to be massaged. And that's a great, I, I think for us, it's like of all the things, like that's a great example of the individual contributor taking it upon themselves to challenge the process that they were doing, introduce technology, use machine learning, solve fundamentally what was a data problem and have some success to talk about. No, Kathleen, you want to add to it. <laughs> yeah, I think that just one thing that we found from all of the guests that we've had on is general themes are that you can come from a variety of different backgrounds to get you where you are. You just have to have an appreciation for certain technologies, depending on your role, it, more or less different understandings. But And we have interviewed people who are from the high level, but then all the way down to those implementers, which is what Ron said, where Alex, about a decade ago, he did this, which was really forward thinking. Not many people were doing that. And so he took it upon himself. But I think that it's just, you know, interesting to hear everybody's background. Some have a technology background, some have a marketing background, like I did. Some have maybe a little less traditional background and all come here for common interests. Yeah. And I think it was interesting, Ron, what you said about that was something that he worked on was fundamentally a data problem. I think if you have any kind of experience working with something that is fundamentally a data problem, then any industry is transferable at some point. So what would your advice be to someone wanting to get into AI or data science, whether or not we use those terms interchangeably, uh, given that people have all these different backgrounds and all backgrounds can have transferable skills? What are the key things that you think people need to upskill on to make a move into this space? Fortunately, data is a growth industry because data is growing. <laughs> it's the inevitable thing. And I think one of the interesting things about the growth of data, this is something that we've covered and I'm sure you guys have covered, is that you have structured data, well-defined schema, and you have the unstructured data, the, the text, and actually the rate of unstructured data growth like it's outpacing the rate of structured data growth. And we need techniques to basically get value out of that unstructured data. And actually, machine learning provides a lot of solutions. To, and traditional and other forms, data science in general, as a whole discipline, provides a lot of solutions to trying to extract information, we call informational needles from data haystacks to really get that value. For those who are listening who are trying to get into this field, I think this is a really great opportunity. I think you know you don't have to start from that academic background. I, I think even the universities are trying to figure out how to build curricula around data science. Does it fit within the traditional computing centers of active? Does it fit within mathematics and statistics and probably that area? Does it fit within economics even? It's interesting kind of how, how this area is growing. So I think that provides evidence that it's a lot of data science is a mindset. One of the things we have is actually part of our methodology training course. There's actually a course we built that was actually requested, interestingly enough, by the Department of Defense. The U.S. Department of Defense has this uh, joint AI center, the Jake, and they put out this sort of uh, ideal catalog of what they would like. Even people who are working in defense who are not technologists, but they have to deal with data because they're like dealing with volumes and volumes of data. They have this course called like How to Think like a data scientist, not how to be dancers, but just how to think like a data scientist. And so we put together, uh, follow their direction. We basically put together this course. It was about like, 
knowing what's important, knowing what's not important, knowing how to be a critical thinker, and knowing how to basically have a hypothesis and test a hypothesis, and how to not let your own biases to what you believe the answer should be or could be really hide what the answer might be. And a lot of things around communication and working in teams. And it's interesting because that mentality of, of, of thinking, okay, my job is to facilitate the movement and understanding and value generation of data. And I may play only a single role within that. My Maybe I'm in the data creation aspect. Maybe I'm in the data manipulation aspect. Maybe I'm in the analysis aspect. We are all parts of the same puzzle that needs to come together because any sort of kink in that thing, bad data generation, bad data preparation, bad data, whatever impacts the final result quality. I think those who are looking to get into industry, I think can look at that whole minefield, the whole aspect of the whole life cycle of it and figure out what parts they have a personal affinity for. People have different uh, things. Some people like to be great. Data visualization in and of itself is an art and a science, but an art. And knowing like, how do you visualize, how do you basically extract for our human brains an understanding of what this data means? I, I think there's a lot of entry points. There's a lot of growth points. And you don't have to basically look at, I want to be like the Facebook data science. It's, that's a thing. That's like a thing they do for you and for your organization. It might be a different thing. That sounds like a course that we've been talking about that we need to create for a couple of years now, but it's really great that someone else did it so we don't. Have to. Maybe <laughs> Kathleen, you can give us an insight into one of the, one of the the struggles we've had testing the idea that everything you just said wrong could be taught is that people have to have a mindset where they want to learn those things. And and the few times we've wandered out and tested teaching it, sometimes people go, "Yeah, but we want to learn about algorithms." So how? If you can reveal sensitive commercial data, <laughs> what proportion of your revenue comes from that course versus other course? How popular is <laughs> was that course? Well, I was going to say, we, we don't sell it individually. So we make sure that it's part of a package where they're really learning about the entire CPMAI methodology and how that fits into it. I think that if we were to sell it individually, it would do the course disservice because it's good to see it from the whole standpoint. However, looking at the course and breaking it down with people that have taken it, I think that it, you know it's thinking and acting like a data scientist. It's to get people thinking and acting like a data scientist who maybe traditionally say, that's that's not what I do. Or if they go, I want to get into it. How do I get into it? What do I do? And we're like, you can come from many different backgrounds, which is what's so nice about data science. There isn't mm. just one set path that you need to take. And, but, you know, having a curiosity, having curiosity, questioning things, don't take things at face value. These are some basic skills that data scientists need to have. And if that's not something that you have innately, either can you get to that stage or maybe data science isn't for you. You may love data, but data science might not be the right role. As Ron said, there's data visualization. You can do that. Other things related to to data. And because there are some of those hard skills that you need to learn, the math, linear algebra, statistics, but there's a lot of soft skills that come with it. And I know that in our, our crossover podcast, you had talked about industry and domain knowledge as well, which also is incredibly important. 
If you're going into an industry and you don't have that background knowledge for it, it's hard to get caught up to speed very quick. And also you can't just jump to different industries and be a data scientist in all different industries. Yeah, I, I want to add to that. We actually have had a, f- a few, Not in addition to doing the podcast, Kathleen and I do webinars, and we, we run this event, which actually used to be an in-person event back in the day of in-person events. Called, it was AI and government, where, because we were in the Washington, D.C. region, we would bring folks who are leading AI efforts or involved in AI efforts in the government to come and present what they were doing, and we'd have pizza and beer. <laughs> we'd listen to them. Half for the content, half for the pizza and beer, maybe another half for networking with people. I know that's bad data science right there. But anyway, it's that's what we'd have. And then one of the interesting things as part of the, running these online events is that inevitably people would ask, because people would come also, there were job seekers on it. Let's be honest. There are people who are there looking to get into the field. And, and so they'd say, or, or like we had an example, we also run another event series called Data for AI, which is basically talking about the data side of AI. So all the unsexy parts, data engineering and data preparation, the parts that people really don't want, they want to do algorithms, but, they, but we end up talking about other stuff. And we had a fellow actually, because it's public, is you can actually watch this, this is the uh, fellow from Elon Kazi from Health Group. And he actually spent half of his time talking about the job thing. And people were coming up to him and saying, like, how do I become a data scientist? And he was telling me, look, even if you go through school for data scientists, you're not going to see the kinds of data and problems that we have here. So what you're going to see, he didn't want to call them toy problems, but, like, but you're going to see examples that are interesting. I've seen so many resumes full of that. Yeah. And so he goes, what I really want to see is I want to see how you approach problem solving. I want to see sort of your ability to your facility with efficiency, with various different tools and things like that. And I want to see, and and a lot of that has some of that are the hard skills, but some of those are the soft skills. My final question then was going to to flip your final question to you and ask you what you think the future of AI is. Where is it going in the next five years? We love asking the question, what do you feel, what do you think is the future of AI and its application to enterprises and organizations and beyond? Because we always get different answers to it. And it's actually interesting to, to be asked that question. I think, and it, maybe Kathleen and I may even have different, may even have different perspectives on it. I think the first thing is that we see a lot of, we are very much practicalists and realists. And we also understand that the hype and around AI, even the understanding of AI really outpaces the practicality of what we're actually doing with it. A lot of times we're we're solving very mundane problems uh, using the tools and technology of machine learning and data science that in some cases are trying to make systems more intelligent, but other cases are just trying to what we call reduce the cognitive load on people, whether it's automating things, which is definitely not applying any machine learning or even data science, just automation, because it reduces taking the robot out of the human. That's what we talk to people, basically making people who are spending much of their time doing things that are just non-productive but necessary tasks. Machines are good at that. And they don't have any qualms with repeating the same thing over and over again. So that that's the one thing. So we see this, this sort of the future of AI, a lot of it has to do with basically going back to to the roots and basically taking a look at all the practical and very much mundane things that don't get the news. And that's where we're seeing the most success with machine learning. And I hope that as machine learning helps us evolve to the next step of AI, because AI isn't machine learning. AI is all about trying to make machines intelligent as close to the 
capacity and capability of humans as we can make them and learn machine learning, deriving insights from data and produce and understanding patterns certainly helps us what we call the seven patterns of AI, which are recognition and conversation, predictive analytics, pattern and anomaly detection, autonomous systems, hyper-personalization and goal-driven systems certainly helps us with those things. But even in those circumstances, we need more to be able to address issues of dealing with adaptive change and, and creativity and all sorts of things. And that's what be the next sort of frontier of AI. But until we get to that frontier of AI, we are here trying to make practical use of AI. And so we, we believe the future of AI is all about let's about dampening the hype and focusing on the mundane, but still very practical. I don't know, Kathleen might have a different perspective on the future of AI. So at Cognolytica, we always say start small, think big, and iterate often. And as Ron mentioned, start with those small mundane tasks where you can really get a lot of benefit, show a lot of value, get buy-in from the organization. And it's this idea also of augmented intelligence where you're not removing the human from the loop, but you're just helping humans do their job better. I think that when you take that approach, you can get a lot of buy-in and really power your organization forward and see a lot of those benefits. From a personal standpoint, one area that I'd love to see take off is autonomous vehicles, so I don't need to drive anymore. I don't know how far away we are from that. A few years ago, I thought maybe we would be a little bit closer, hopefully, than we are. I think that there's been some setbacks in the industry. People aren't looking at it as much. Maybe we're focusing our efforts elsewhere, but that is still a dream of mine that one day I no longer have to drive. <laughs> so that's from a personal standpoint, but we'll see. <laughs> I think we'll hopefully see that in our lifetime. And Ron, what you described, I hope that's going to be the uh, AI summer rather than another AI winter. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, honestly, I think that's why we enjoy our interviews so much is because, as mentioned, the people who are trying to make this thing work, they're, they're, they have a healthy dose of, of skepticism and realism, but they haven't given up. They're like, I guess we're going to go back to some older method. There's definitely no desire <laughs> to go back to the older approaches, the ones that require more human labor, the ones that don't re that require not using, you know, any sort of algorithmic approaches to dealing with data. So I think that's a plus. The question is just the, is, instead of hyper driving this vehicle of AI forward with that, with abandon, I think there's more of a, of a paced approach. And hopefully the vendors who are selling software in this space will also have a paced approach. They're not over promising because then they won't have their own issues, whether, whatever they've promised to investors. <laughs> they'll have to go back and unpromise. So we're, we're hoping for the real, realism to, to take hold. That's a very positive note to end on before we accidentally descend into any more cynicism. Thank you so much, both uh, Ron and Kathleen, for coming. This has been a, a really great discussion. And our listeners should definitely check out the AI Today podcast. There's a, a wealth of interviews at uh, much more regular intervals than our own podcast as well, talking about various implementations of AI and various interesting guests. So thank you so much, both uh, Ron and Kathleen, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us as guests. And, and, and we encourage our uh, the listeners to also listen to the interview that we had with the Half Stack Data the Science podcast folks in our podcast. It was fantastic. So I'm not going to say anything more about it. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Nice.